Well, we are beginning a new series um, of uh, messages today on the subject of margin. This is something I've been looking forward to for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of them is uh, because uh, the the idea came to me back during the fall when when we were in a uh, study in the um, the women's Bible study, and uh, we were reading the book called The Beaut- and, uh, Good and Beautiful God, and I think it was uh, generally well-received, but the one chapter that was um, that seemed to strike a chord with the most people, um, uh, generating some real excitement, was a chapter on margin. And I thought to myself, I would love to be able to share with the greater congregation what we were uh, coming across and, and uncovering in the um, in the, the Bible study, the women's Bible study. Um, so that's part of the reason, is I'd just like to be able to share with you what we were looking at um, in that study. But the other reason is personal. I want to have more margin in my life. Um, I, I have got brand new glasses, and I've been to the to get them adjusted once. Well, first of all, you know it just takes time. I wasn't planning to get glasses. They're something you do once uh, every couple of years, and so it's not like you know taking out the the trash or something. You don't build it into your schedule, and so it comes as kind of an uh, an intrusion. So I went and got glasses, and then I had to go back and get them adjusted, and they're still not where I want. You know you you're. Most of you are like all blurry right now, and I have to figure out to, to get them some other way. So I've got to go back again. It's, it's, this is an uptown problem, right? I know. But it's bugging me because it's going to take an hour, an hour and a half to go over there and get them adjusted and so forth. So it's bugging me because I don't have any margin. I had some, some minor car problem this week, and I had to go get a new battery. And it bugged me because it was an hour that I didn't have planned. And it bugs me to be required to do perfectly ordinary, perfectly reasonable things because I have no margin. So what do I mean by margin? Well, some of you are old enough to remember typewriters, and you remember the way you would set a margin in a typewriter. It's The margin is the, is the place between uh, the, the white spaces. It's the part you actually type on. Or, or some of you are tech, technological enough, you know how to set margins in your word processor. It's the space that you have... Um, to to work in on our bulletin we see um, this is a this is a page from um, a manuscript from the 1200s I believe and um, you see they had margins then too uh, they actually lined their paper which I thought was pretty interesting um, they had margins which is which is really when you when you stop and think about it pretty amazing the the paper they used in those days was actually parchment it was made out of um, calf skin or or uh, sheep skin. And it's stretched and, and treated and, and uh, scraped and treated, and it winds up just about the thickness of really nice paper. And um, it lasts forever. You know, it, that, that looks a lot better than pictures you see from uh, uh, books from just 100 years ago. Um, parchment's great for writing on. It's incredibly expensive, though. And so you would think they would just use up every little bit of paper that, or every little bit of writing surface they had, but they didn't. They left the margin. They left all that white space around the edge. This is a, a left-hand side, and so you can see they've left a big left margin, and then its companion page would have a big right margin, and there's a big margin in the bottom. And since it was so expensive, I mean, a, a typical piece of parchment would, in today's purchasing power, probably cost uh, between $25 and $50. So that's one sheet of paper. Um, so, you know, you didn't do a lot of writing, and, and when you did, it had to count. And yet they left these margins there. And so you may, you may be asking yourself, why did they do that? One of the reasons is because they, 
they would make corrections. I mean, this is this is in the days of handwriting. Um, when you're, you're copying a manuscript and you're writing down line after line and your eye wanders and you accidentally write the same line twice and you need to go back and exit out or you need to make a little note to the side, don't read this twice. Um, or, or maybe you skip a line and you need to make room to say, this is the line I meant to put in there. So you need to make corrections. You skip a letter, you misspell a word. You need to be able to fix those things so they would have, they would have margins for that. Um, they, they put, they put, uh, margins so they could fix, they, they, they could make corrections. I don't know about you, I'd like to have that kind of margin in my life. A place where I could make fixes, where I could apply patches to my life. Um, and I find it difficult because I don't have much margin in my life. Another reason they would have margins is so they could make notes. In fact, one of the things we see in some of the ancient manuscripts is there'd be a debate between different scribes. One of them would have said, you know, I copied it down and it said this, but I don't think that's right. I think it should say this. But I copied it down and now I'm going to make a little note off to the side. Here's my best guess of what they meant to say. And sometimes uh, we see a lot of notes like that. But sometimes we even see where there's like a debate between the scribes and they'll say, no, leave it alone. And, and a famous one says, says, let the text stand, thou foul priest. So um, apparently they, they got a little heated over what that, what that particular phrase was. So they would, they would leave margin so they could make notes, so that they could have room to, to uh, think about and dwell on the significant parts of what they were doing. I'd like to have that kind of margin in my life. The other reason I'd like to have margin is the, is the obvious one. You look at the page, it's pretty. It's spacious. It doesn't look cramped. It doesn't look strained or stressed. I'd like to have that kind of margin in my life. So, so we're going to be talking over the next couple of weeks about margin and how we can get it and, and why we should have it. And um, when we do, my fear is you're going to say, well, that's obvious. That's just common sense. Why shouldn't we, you know, why shouldn't we just do that? And, and what does that have to do with religion anyway? So what I'd like to do today is just answer that question. What does this have to do with religion? And, and my first answer is, uh, it's not incompatible with religion if something makes sense. Okay, I really believe that. Some of you may have a different perspective, but uh, I believe religion has to make sense. And, may even be practical. So we're going to see how our religion, the things that the scriptures teach us, can be practical and can make sense. So that's my first answer. My second answer is, if we have a Heavenly Father who loves us, then He doesn't want us to be strained. We see this all through those scriptures. Uh, Jesus is telling his, His disciples to do the most amazing things, and He says, you'll have joy. He doesn't want us to be crabby because we have to go back and get our glasses adjusted. He wants us to have margin in our life. And then the two, those are, those are easy kind of, kind of surface reasons. The other two I'm going to look at right now, one of them is that margin is Christ-like. If you would like to be like Jesus, one of the things that you need to do in your life is to carve out some margin because as we'll see today, Jesus had margin in his life. And then the final reason, and again we'll see this today, is that, is that God seems to work in the margins. God seems to particularly, uh, delight in taking the little bits that we have to offer. Not the center of our page, where all the words are, but the edges. God seems to delight in working around the edges. When we give God the things that we have small amounts of, the things in the margin, 
God seems to delight in working in those areas. So what I want to do now is just take a look at this scripture. And um, as befits a, a, a communion Sunday when we have uh, other things going on, I will try to make this brief um, so that you all can make good use of your time. That's kind of the whole idea behind margin here today. So, um, <clears throat> so our reading begins, On their return, the apostles told them all that they had done. Um, on their return, uh, the apostles. Who are the apostles? Well, we're going to see in the next um, few verses that the apostles are some of Jesus' disciples. The word apostle means sent. And if we go back to the beginning of the chapter, Jesus sent them out. Jesus sent these people, so they are the ones who got sent. Um, and we're going to find out that they are some of Jesus' disciples. What did Jesus send them to do? Well, if we go back uh, to the beginning of the chapter, it says, He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases and sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. So Jesus gave them the kind of power that he enjoyed and said, Go use it. Go use it to, to heal people and uh, talk to people about the kingdom of God. So they've been out doing that, and they come back, and they want to tell Jesus all the things that, that has happened while they've been out doing that. And uh, Jesus says, that's a great idea. Let's have a retreat. Let's just get together. Let's go someplace private, and we'll just talk about it. We'll talk it over. We'll have some Jesus time, and and uh, you'll have a chance to, to share with me the things you've learned, and and we'll go from there. So he does. He took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Now we're going to see in a moment, it's a desolate place near the town of Bethsaida, but whatever. So when the crowds learned it, they followed him. Uh, that makes sense too. If you go back to the last couple of chapters, whenever Jesus shows up, he heals people, crazy things start happening, and crowds follow. They hear Jesus talk about God in a way that nobody else was doing, and and they want to follow him, and that's perfectly reasonable. If Jesus reappeared on earth today in bodily form and began preaching somewhere, I'd go. Um, I would expect you to go. If he was some other church across town, I'd hope this church would be empty because we'd all want to go see Jesus. Um, in fact, I think the biggest question that, that those of us in the church should be asking ourselves is, is uh, what are we doing as the body of Christ to keep people from being attracted to Jesus in the same way. I think that's a question the church should always be asking itself, is why aren't crowds attracted to the Jesus that we're talking about the way that they are attracted to the Jesus that we see in Scripture? So that's a question we can meditate on some other day. But the crowds learned about it, and they followed him. And then Jesus said, I'm sorry, I've got a retreat scheduled with some of my core team, and I can't uh, see you today but I am going to be giving a conference in a few days, so if you send your money, um, then we'll, we'll be meeting at this big church um, over on the other side of Bethsaida. No, that's not what Jesus said. What did Jesus do? Jesus welcomed them. Jesus welcomed them, and he spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and he cured those who had need of healing. Jesus welcomed them. How, how, can, how can Jesus do that? How can Jesus stop what he's doing? How can he, how can he uh, have a plan to go take the disciples to one side and, and meet with them privately and then change his plans and not go stomping around Galilee here saying, my plans are all wrecked? 
How does Jesus have the time to do that? And this is Jesus we're talking about. Jesus, this is the last year of his life. Okay, At the end of this chapter, Jesus is going to set his face for Jerusalem and the cross that's waiting there. This is the most significant time in history. This is literally the most important year in the history of, of history. This is, this is it. And if you or I had planned this year, it would be packed. There wouldn't be an inch of wiggle room anywhere in it. Every single moment would be calibrated to the last degree. Since Adam and Eve fell in the garden, this year has been planned out. The things that happen this year are crucial to God's plan for salvation. And Jesus just rolls with the punches. Jesus just says, all right, we'll do this instead. I would like to be like Jesus. I would like to have enough margin in my life, in my my pitiful little plans, that I can behave in my life the way he does when his much more important plan is interrupted by something that he wasn't expecting to have happen. I would like to be like Jesus. So what does Jesus do? It says, he welcomes them, and then he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bore you for a moment. If you're not a language geek, I'm a language geek. It was the only part I really enjoyed in seminary, learning, learning the biblical languages. Uh, there's, a, there's a verbal tense here um, that, that we don't use a lot in English. It's the imperfect tense. Um, we know about the present tense. I'm eating pizza. Okay, that's present. I'm currently, right now, eating pizza. We know about the past tense. I ate pizza. I had some pizza yesterday. I ate pizza. The imperfect tense is when I don't tell you whether I'm done yet. I say, I was eating pizza. I wasn't done yet. I was eating pizza when the doorbell rang. It was the delivery man bringing more pizza. Okay, I was in the middle of my pizza and something happened. And this is one of the rare places in Scripture where we actually see that. Uh, Jesus was healing them. Jesus was speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't just give them a quick, you know, let me give you a five-minute sermonette. Let me heal the worst cases. I'll triage you. I'll heal the worst ones and and then send you home. Jesus kept healing them. He kept talking to them. He kept doing this and was finally interrupted by the disciples coming to him. They're saying, hey, Jesus, I don't know if you've been noticing, but the sun is slipping down toward the horizon. You need to send the crowd away um, so they can go find some food and lodging today. You need to, you need to like start paying attention to the clock, Jesus. Uh, we've already given up on any hope of a retreat with you. But at this point, you need to deal with the, the crisis that's about to occur. And this is another place I'd like to be like Jesus. Because what does Jesus do? Jesus tells the, tells the disciples, he says, he says, you feed them. And they say, how? How can we possibly feed them, Jesus? Uh, between us, we've got maybe five loaves of bread and two, two uh, pieces of fish. And... Um, uh, that's all we've got, unless, unless you want us to go buy food for them. Now, I don't know, are they being sarcastic or are they serious? We know from other, other parts of the Bible that the, um, the disciples did have a money bag, uh, that they would use to, to take care of the poor. Um, so maybe there was enough money in there and they were actually asking a real question. Do you really want us to pay for 5,000 people or really probably 5,000 men in another 
5,000 women maybe and another 5,000 kids. Uh, a big crowd here. We don't know how many, but at least 5,000 because there's 5,000 men. Do you want us to completely use up every penny we've got um, by dipping into the money bag? Or more likely, I think they're just being sarcastic. I think they're saying, who's got that kind of money? Nobody's got that kind of money. We can't feed them. They say, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there are about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down. This is where I would love to be like Jesus. Again, at this point, Jesus has not performed a miracle, right? Jesus has done no miracle. Jesus is just relaxed. Jesus isn't worried about time, even when his schedule goes completely crazy. And he's not worried about the food. He's not worried about this crowd and this responsibility he has because he welcomed them. I'd like to be like Jesus. I'd like to be more relaxed with my time. And when I see a big crowd of hungry people, I'd like to be relaxed about telling my friends to buy them some food. I would like to be like Jesus. That was a joke. All right. So, there we go. All right. And if you have to explain it, then all right, move along. So, I would like to be like Jesus. I would. Um, I would like to have margin in my life. And so what we see now is Jesus finally performs this miracle. This is... This is an interesting miracle because apart from the resurrection itself, this is the only miracle that appears in all four biographies of Jesus when he feeds the multitude of 5,000 men. Since this is the only miracle that appears in all four biographies, um, it, it behooves us to pay attention to it. But really, there's only so much we can do with it. He has them sit down in groups of 50. Why 50? I don't know. It doesn't explain Maybe the best the best answer I can give you is because then you can kind of count, you know, 50, 100, 150. Maybe he wants to show that there's really more than 5,000. Maybe he wants to say, look, you silly disciples, there's only a few thousand. I don't know why Jesus has them sit down in groups. Probably, though, for counting. And then he does this miracle. He blesses, the, he, takes the, he takes the bread, he takes the fish, he blesses it, and then he keeps on giving it. Again, another one of those imperfect tenses. He keeps passing it out until everybody's fed. This word for fed here is, is the word you use when you're fattening cattle to take them to market. So uh, they, they aren't just fed, they're gorged. They're absolutely stuffed. This is Thanksgiving Day kind of loosen, loosen your belt a couple of notches. They are absolutely filled with five loaves and two fishes. Jesus feeds this huge crowd with hardly anything. And then when they're done, there's 12 baskets of scraps left over, 12 baskets of leftovers. And really, that's what Jesus is all about. Jesus is about leftovers here. Jesus is about finding space where there wasn't any. I admire Jesus because of the way he behaves when he's stretched, when he's stressed, when, when plans don't go the way that he was hoping, when, when he sees something intruding on the time that he had, he had set aside for this activity and he sees something else has to happen, and he just does it. It doesn't, it doesn't bug him. It doesn't make him uh, go nuts. And it doesn't make him turn away the crowd. Jesus just rolls with the punches. I admire that. But I also admire Jesus because of the way he trusts in God. He trusts that if he gives what little there is, and he teaches the disciples, if he gives what little he has, see, we don't all have great big margins. Some of us have very very cramped margins in our life. And Jesus shows the disciples, if you give what little you've got, 
even five loaves and two fishes, that God goes to work in those places in particular. And God multiplies in the margins, not in the center of our page. God multiplies when we give just the little bit we've got to spare. When we're most tempted to say, but this is, this is my me time. This is my me money. This is the thing that I, this is the only margin I've got. I can't give this away. That that is precisely when we give those things to God and say, God, I'd like more of this. That's the place where God goes to work. If we want to be more like Jesus, if we want to be more patient with people, more loving, more generous, one of the places that we learn here to find margin is by giving it away. So let me encourage you. Um, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at some practical applications. How do we actually do that? And you may be thinking, yeah, but this is too obvious. This isn't very religious. Remember this lesson. Jesus works in the margins because God wants his children to live in joy and not stress out all the time. Religion can be practical. And Jesus teaches us that we can give our last little bits to God. God will multiply them. So be thinking, in 2013, where in my life would I like to have margin? Would I like to have margin in my time? Would I like to have margin in my finances? Be thinking, what would I like margin in? Because that's what we're going to be talking about, is the places where God will give us that margin. Amen.